So today was the first day for writing my next book. I woke up excited and really ready to go. But now it's about 9.30 p.m. And I got down maybe 40 words on the page. So I'd just like to say, fuck, 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 fucking fuck, 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 fuck. <sighs> Thank you. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Matt Johnson, the former Mariposa Weekly Gazette writer and editor who, despite a profound love for journalism and weekly newspaper, recently left the profession. And he's now facing all sorts of interesting doubts and questions and debates. This is episode number 206. Let's sling some yang. All right. Well, Matt, first I want to congratulate you because this is either the third, fourth, or fifth, we couldn't remember, time we tried recording this. So you have yeah. set the record. You may not be the most famous person to ever appear on this podcast, but you are the person to most times not <laughs> appear, but almost appear on this podcast. I'll take that. The most prolific guest you've ever had. Right, we'll see. We'll see how this one goes. I think I first knew about you because you wrote about, maybe you wrote about Gunslinger. I think you wrote about Gunslinger. It was the USFL book. Um, I had you on my radio show and we did a little write up for the little, like I had a book review article I wrote for the local newspaper here. So it, it was, uh, you were longtime writer, editor for the uh, Mariposa Weekly Gazette. In my head, I was always like, I need to get Matt on because I kept blowing it, kept blowing it. And I'm not great at scheduling. And I forgot and I forgot. And then recently I was like, you know, I need some new guests. I'm finally going to get Matt on. And then I go to your freaking Twitter page, which I hadn't been to in a while. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy doesn't even write for the newspaper anymore. He And and then I was thinking that's it's kind of actually interesting. So you are a guy who is very passionate about journalism. And every time I've talked to you, that's the one thing that comes across. You are passionate about journalism. You were passionate about the Mariposa Weekly Gazette. Like you were all in. You're all about yeah. it. It's a weekly newspaper. It's a small weekly newspaper in California. And now you're a teacher. You teach uh, elementary school. What happened? <laughs> um, a lot of things happened. It was a combination of a few things. Um, so I got married about a year and a half ago. And we had a baby last late August. I just realized that I wasn't going to make probably enough money. We would we'd be fine, the three of us. But I wanted something a little more. So that was the first thing was like, I knew that I wanted more income. I probably wasn't going to get it where I was and that's okay. Um, second thing was like, I, at heart, I'm a, I'm a sports writer. So that's how I got into newspapers. Eventually I became assistant editor. Like with the pandemic, I missed covering sports. Like that's what I get up for. I love covering local sports. And for about a year, I just wasn't doing that. And I just woke up one day and realized like as passionate as I was about newspapers, like it was more of sports writing than getting up and going to cover a board of supervisors meeting or a hospital board meeting. It just wasn't my cup of tea. And so there was that. And then just some like differences I, I had um, with the ownership there at the paper. I just felt like maybe it was time to move on and try something different. I'm not ruling out a return to journalism someday. Never say never. Um, and even if I keep teaching, like I would love to volunteer for Friday night football coverage or something like that, just to keep my toes in the water. But the biggest thing was just like, 
again, my lifestyle was changing. And even if sports had come back, um, like with a baby and a wife, just on three, four nights a week till 10 at night. So just felt like it was time for something different. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I miss it every day. I still miss it. Can an argument be made that you are a victim of the pandemic? Like, I mean, I know you said, even if you were covering sports, you blah, 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 blah. But like, so let's say the pandemic never happens and life is going on as it is. Do you think you still make that change? Um, you could make an argument and, and credit to the owners of the Gazette. They're amazing people and they worked hard to make sure none of their employees were lost, at least because of financial reasons. Um, so credit to them. They stayed afloat. They've, they're still going strong. It's the oldest um, weekly newspaper in California. But yeah, you could make an argument just in the sense that if that had never happened and I was still doing my normal coverage, which the bulk of which was sports, that I might still be there because maybe I wouldn't have had those doubts or those thoughts of, hey, maybe it's time to quit. So possibly, possibly, yes, I might be a victim of the pandemic. I've said this before in this podcast, like when I came along, when I graduated from college in 94, you sort of knew there were jobs available for you if you worked hard in journalism and you knew you could move your way up. And I, I kind of knew I, I'm going to start at this newspaper in Tennessee, but it's, I'm not going to spend my life here. I'm going to move up and move up and move up and move up. Right. And you have come along in a, uh, it's just a different world. It's a completely different world for media. Do you feel in any way that the modern state of journalism has sort of let you down? Um, yeah, I, I always wish like talking to veterans like yourself, like I wish I could have come up in like the heyday of newspapers when everything was on fire. Like I know you came up with Sports Illustrated and it's crazy just to see even how much Sports Illustrated has changed. So yes, like there's a big part of me that just wishes that, you know, I was 10 years older. I'm 32. So sometimes I wish like, oh man, I wish I had gotten my start like in the 90s or whenever, you know, newspapers are really thriving. Are you let down by the industry? Yeah. I mean, so I graduated with a degree in communication and it's tough, man. It's like you take what you can get. There's a lot of unpaid internships. Um, you do get hired. Like it can be a struggle to really make good money. Um, times are tight. So, yeah, I mean, it is a bummer because there's so many talented people out there, uh, like my age, even even younger and it's just like there's only so many less um, positions. And so it's difficult. It's, it's very difficult to make it in media and entertainment these days because there's so many people fighting for those spots. And even if you do get a spot, it just seems like it's like you're, you're not going to get paid a lot unless you hit the jackpot, you know? You're in Mariposa. The population of Mar yeah. Mariposa, at least 2010 census, was... 2,173 people. How does a newspaper, in this case, the weekly newspaper, the Mariposa Weekly Gazette, with sets a small number of people, how does the thing even survive? And in this case, generally thrive? Okay, well, so there's a couple things. Number one, that population is really deceiving. Like number one, we have millions of tourists coming through here every year. And so obviously like, yes, we might small, but we're pretty busy small town. Secondly, um, that is the population of Mariposa proper. So like we're up in the foothills of the Sierra and I would say the actual population is closer to like 15 to 18,000 because we have so many people that live in like the surrounding foothills around the town. 
So it's a little deceptive. And then secondly, um, like I said, we've been around forever. So it's the oldest weekly newspaper in California and our readers are just super loyal. So, you know, everybody in town, if they don't subscribe, they're at least going to pick it up at the grocery store. Um, you know, their grandparents got it. And I mean, where else are you going to get news about, you know, the Mariposa County high school sports teams or the board of supervisors, they have a, a fantastic advertising director and like with tourism and everything, she just scoops up tons of advertising. So it really helps keep the uh, Gazette going. Are the main readers still people picking up the print publication? Yes. Um, and again, fascinating because you don't see that. Right um, and they do have a pretty strong website base too, but yeah, um, it's super cool. Um, you still see people picking up the print copy at the news or at the grocery store, at the gas station. Um, so yeah, by far, I would say the, the print publication is uh, where it's at. How do you explain that? Because everywhere you go in America, all you hear about is the death of print. That's one thing I really prided myself on covering the sports, like, the closest big newspaper, and when I say big, I just mean bigger than us, is the Merced Sunstar. That's 45 minutes away. They're not coming to our games. I say we like I'm still there. Um, so the Gazette provides that coverage. Um, again, the advertising is really strong because it's a tourist town. And, and I would say the owners there do it right. Um, you look around at, like, let's take a, a, like a mid-sized paper, the Modesto B, right? Fairly large city not even close to anything like LA or, or anything like that, but, you know, decent sized paper, but, you know, you open up the Modesto B these days and it's all AP wire stories. And I mean, they're stories that you read last night. So why would you want to read them, you know, today? So it's all about, I call it hyper local. So you just really got to like provide people something they can't get anywhere else. And that's what I feel like that's what journalism should be is like you're giving people what they can't get anywhere else but nowadays you open up so many papers at least print copies and it's just old news and ap wire stories it's like not trying to bag on like the modesto b but it's like i don't know what those papers are thinking it's like they could get readership if they just covered the local stuff but i don't know I just, it's disappointing to see because like I said, there's still a lot of talent, some great writers out there, great reporters. Um, but I just see so many papers content to just like run these AP wire stories and to dig a little deeper. I know I'm rambling a little bit, but I feel like part of the problem is that a lot of money people are in charge now of decisions at newspapers, the decisions. And so that's another key is getting back to leadership that knows what they're doing and knows how to report and how to write. Um, it's so much about money decisions nowadays. I'm pretty good friend of the, the new sports editor of the LA Times. He told me recently, he's like, we're, we're really getting a renewed focus on high school sports. And I thought it makes so yeah. much sense. It's amazing that more people don't say that. Like, how many Ram stories do I need to read? How many LeBron stories do I need to read? It's not even, it doesn't even seem that complicated. I know it's, it's not, it shouldn't be. And like I said, hyper-local, hyper-local. That's the term that I always throw around. You got to focus extra hard on those local stories that people can't get anywhere else. That should be the biggest thing, in my opinion, that an editor and a publisher should ask is, are we providing content that people can't get elsewhere? That should be the biggest thing. 
So you're thinking about leaving the newspaper. You're thinking about leaving the newspaper. You, you've devoted your life so far, your adult life to journalism. How did you come up with the final decision and how difficult was it to kind of pull the, you know, pull it off? So it was very difficult, very emotional. I remember going out to eat with my wife. We had just had the baby a week or two prior and I had been debating it for a while. Um, and some things happened. I won't get into it, but I was like, all right, let's do it. So I took a couple months off just to be with the baby. We traveled a little bit. Um, my parents live in South Dakota uh, with COVID. We drove up there, tried to you know, obviously stay away from people. So I took some time off just to kind of clear my head and regroup. And I actually, for I had some ideas, like I, I knew teaching was a possibility. Um, there were some other possibilities, but I, I was scared because, you know, a new father, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I knew I had some options. Um, but yeah, we were eating at a, our favorite Mexican place here in town and we just kind of had a long talk. It was like, are we going to do this? It's like, all right, I'm going to do it. And it, it was sad. Um, you can probably still hear it in my voice. Like to this day, I miss writing every day. I miss that thrill of getting up and okay, what story am I going to crank out today? Just the creativity of writing and not just writing, but designing pages and coming up with story ideas. And there's not really a job like it. There really isn't. There's no other job like journalism. It's just, I love it. I have so much passion for it. So I don't know. I, I just think newspapers have so much value. Uh, we just need to kind of go back to our roots and what works. I haven't asked anyone this. And I don't want it to come off the wrong way. So if it comes off as a bad way, I don't mean it as a bad way. When you sort of move on from a, from a dream career, like when you finally make the decision, okay, I'm going to do something else. Is there a part of you that needs to overcome a feeling of like, in a way quitting? And I'm not saying you quit. I'm not saying that. But is there a feeling of like, do you know what I mean? A little bit, a little bit. Like it almost feels like maybe I left something on the table. Um, not that I'm some great writer or anything, but like, you know, you do it for, I did it for seven years roughly. And that's not that long really, but I feel like I accomplished a lot in those seven years. And I don't know. Yeah. It, I'm not going to lie. There's times when I, I try not to read the paper anymore here, sadly. I know that's terrible to say that, but it's just hard for me to like see it at someone's house and like pick it up and it's tough. It's, it, it is. I'm, I'm sure you felt that after you've, you know, you're still in the industry, but maybe after you left a certain employer or a certain location, it's just like, okay. oh man, kind of, it just hurts to kind of leave sometimes something that you love. I remember when I left the Tennessean to go to Sports Illustrated and uh, even though I felt like it was a decision I had to make, I felt like I was abandoning this place that really nurtured me and brought me along and I actually felt pangs of guilt, you know, and yeah. it's a weird feeling. It's a weird thing to go through. I'm fascinated by a couple of things here. Number one, there's something you, uh, you never told me about yourself and I didn't know. So you mentioned the term hyper-local before. I think you are the author of yeah. maybe the most hyper-local book in the history of hyper-local books, which is South Fremont Cougars, <laughs> The Road to a Title. I had no idea you wrote this. Oh, 2015, no. I want to say, it's, I'm looking at the Amazon page. The uh, description is the oh, South yeah. Fremont Cougars a high school program in Southeastern Idaho won their first 3A boys basketball title, a state title in March of 2015. We live all of the excitement with a look back at the season from local sports editor, Matt Johnson. And right now, Matt. Oh my gosh. Wait, Matt, I don't want you to get too excited. Oh no. 
Right now, your book on Amazon is three million seven hundred fifty-six thousand one hundred six. I can't believe you found that. That's some of my really early work. So hopefully, no one goes on and buys it. But wait, time out. Um, First of all, you wrote a book. Why yeah. are you embarrassed of that? And what's the story behind it? Well, there is a story behind it. So I was in Idaho at the time, my first newspaper, um, and I fell in love with covering this high school, uh, South Fremont, out in uh, St. Anthony, Idaho tiny little town. And they had this kid who was like six foot seven, Con Bauer. He led him to the state title in the town. It was like, unlike anything the town had ever seen, just like high school basketball mania took over. And so I was like, I'm just going to write a book and see what happens, kind of compile some memories. But I actually got in trouble, um, (laughs) got in trouble with my old employer, Pioneer Newspapers, because even though I was working on it in my spare time, some of the photos that I used were photos I had taken at the game, but technically it was like the intellectual property of pioneer newspapers, I guess, even though like I took the photos and they were, there were photos that we hadn't run in the newspaper. They were just like leftover photos I had, but I got in trouble. I had the publisher, he like came and sat me down and he's like, you know, what do we need to know about this book? And it turned into this big fiasco. But yeah, uh, it was a good book. It was a nice little book, just a little bit rough on the writing because I was brand new. But yeah, that's the story behind it. I don't want to end there. So you decide I'm going to write this book and your newspaper's pissed at you and blah, blah, and you self-published. Did you did you publish in print or was it just an ebook? It was print. And I think it might've also been an ebook, but definitely in print. Do you have any idea how many copies you sold of the book? Oh, geez. Um I mean, most of the players, a couple of the fans, maybe I probably sold maybe 20 copies, maybe. Was it a rewarding experience? Or are you like, why did I do that? I mean, I definitely wasn't ready. I didn't follow it. <laughs> like I just busted it out. It was like a, a home project. Basically, I, I, <laughs> I think I had one or two people proofread it. It was just more of a fun thing. I wanted to, I wanted to commemorate the season. I really got close to the, the athletes, the coach, the, the families there. Um, when you're a small town sports reporter, you're almost like a little celebrity. You show up to the games and everyone's just thrilled that you're there, right? Yeah. And so it just became kind of this passion project for me. So no, I'm not like, I'm happy I did it. I'm just kind of embarrassed because like, I know that my writing has come so much further. I don't, I don't really advertise because I'm kind of embarrassed that I have to like self-publish them and no one's going to pick up a book you know, no publisher is going to pick up a book written by someone from the Mariposa Gazette. All right, wait, I'm going to give you a quick pep talk. Number one, it actually pisses me off that you're embarrassed by that. To me, it shows hustle and grit. Uh-huh. No, I'm being serious. I can't imagine for the life of me why you'd be embarrassed about that. To me, self-publishing books is 100 First of all, it's 100% legitimate and you're freaking going out of your way to do it and you're working hard to do it. Yeah. So why would you be embarrassed by that? You should be proud of that. I don't know. I, I always... You know, always envisioned, like even when I was a little kid, um, I always envisioned getting, you know, a book deal or being a reporter on TV. I wish that I had made it to like a bigger news organization and maybe I could have gotten a book picked up. But that's a whole other story. Frustrating um, applying to so many different big newspapers with, you know, with some accolades, with some things to my name and just like never even hearing back. So that kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier with uh, some of the frustration. So when you look at your career and you've applied for different jobs and you look at jobs you haven't gotten, do you look back and think, 
I just got unlucky? Do you look back and think maybe I wasn't good enough in certain areas? Do you look back and think timing? Like, what do you sort of, what do you attribute that to? Combination, combination of things. You know, I think uh, if you're really going to make it big time, you probably need an internship at one of the bigger places, right? So, you know, I graduated from school out in Idaho. There's not a big pipeline to major news organizations getting your start in Idaho, right? Came out to California. I think if I had been more patient and continued to work there, maybe I could have stepped up like the Fresno Bee or the Sacramento Bee and then maybe gone to someplace even bigger. But it takes time and it takes some luck. It takes some connections. Uh, Maybe there were some areas that I could have improved on. I mean, honestly, so much of life in itself is just like right place, right time, a little bit of luck, things like that. Um, And I think I have some of those things, but if I really wanted to make it big, I think I would have had to just keep applying and have been more patient. Who knows? Who knows? Like I said, there's so many amazing writers out there and we're all gunning for those great jobs. One thing I've enjoyed about your career and reading your clips along the way over the years is you cover some of the weirdest stories ever because, you know, you cover every story and you chase things. And I just want to say, um, before you were Mariposa, you wrote you wrote for the Upper Valley Standard Journal in Rexburg, Idaho. You wrote a story I found <laughs> January 27, oh, no. 2016. Large mountain lion killed recently in Fremont County. And your, your lead was a father and son who were hunting in Fremont County recently were in for a big surprise. On Monday, December 28th, Trey Ormy and his father, Ryan Ormy, came upon signs of a mountain lion in the Conant Creek area, just east of Ashton. After tracking it for a short time, they killed the massive animal. The male lion weighed an estimated 170 pounds and was measured at nearly seven and a half feet long from the tip of its nose to the end of its tail. And it's this whole story about, my number one thought, to be honest with you, from a non-journalistic standpoint, was what kind of assholes are killing a freaking huge mountain lion? Like, why are you killing this thing? Like, he's just like living his life. That's Idaho for you, man. That's Idaho for you. <laughs> why? Like, why? He didn't do anything to you. Well, one of my sentences doesn't even make sense. I say they tracked it and tracked it for a short time. That's what I mean. My writing was just, ugh. The one thing that I will say about writing for smaller papers, and this comes from my own experience too, like even at the Tennessean, I was getting a copy editor and a, and a desk editor reading everything I wrote. So- yeah you're not getting the same amount of editing and, and probably to a certain degree, the same quality editors with the same amount of experience. So stuff like that is going to slip through. I don't think it's a matter of you being a bad writer or even a sloppy yeah. writer. I think people catch mm-hmm. your stuff when you work at bigger places. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there were times, again, not trying to knock anyone or any organization, but times when just like maybe one or two people would quickly look at my work and especially on deadline. Like I had a Friday night deadline in Idaho So I'd get back from covering football games. I was the one man sports staff. So I didn't even have anybody like edit. I'm not even lying. I didn't have anybody edit my work. I just had to like bust it out in like 20 minutes, put it on the page and send it to the presses. That was nerve wracking. You're right. Absolutely. At a small paper, it's a lot different. What's the weirdest story you've ever covered? That's easy. Um, There was this donkey and it got stranded on a small island out at a lake and it had a mangled leg. And for months, this donkey lived on this little tiny island and everyone in the community was like freaking out about it. Like, how are we gonna get it off the island? How are we gonna get it off? So I covered that. 
for a year, I provided endless donkey updates. That by far, I would say, is the weirdest story I've ever, ever covered. Wait, were you into it? Like, were you, were you like um, oh, with the donkey or were you like, this is amazing. I love this beat. You know, at, at first it was kind of funny. Um, at, towards the end, it was just like, man, like, what am I doing? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what am I doing with my life? But they finally got it off the island. So I got to stop writing about it. But I'm not joking you. That, that story lasted for like a year um, because they tried a few different ways. The donkey was resisting. It was injured. Yeah, by far, I would say the weirdest story I've ever covered. Did you ever get to meet the donkey? I did not get to meet the donkey. I went out on location. Well, I guess you could say I got close to it, but um, I wasn't there when they actually, I think they had like the California Department of Fish and Game, if I remember right. They came out and rescued it. And I wanted to be out there for the rescue, but I think I had a different meeting or something to cover. So no, I never really got to meet it. Um, but they took it to a donkey sanctuary. I remember that now that's where they rehomed it at some sanctuary for, I don't know that, I guess they have donkey sanctuaries. <laughs> you did a story in 2019 that I really loved. And it's not one that you sent me. It's called, um, what are you doing? Johnson Gazette participates in California highway patrol media boot camp. Your lead was, or it started with, as I made my way to Sacramento at 3:30 AM, accompanied by California highway patrol officer, Matthew chance, I had an inkling about what the day ahead had in store, but there was no way to properly prepare myself. I was attending the California Highway Patrol's media boot camp for the first time. And though I had received some pre-trip advice from editor Greg Little, who attended the camp two years ago, there was really nothing that could truly warn me for what was ahead. We arrived at the academy in good time, and the road-weary media members congregated at 7 a.m. to receive our initial instruction for the day. A flag-raising ceremony opened the day as a light drizzle began. Jamie Coffey, an information officer for the California Highway Patrol, greeted us and gave us the outline for the day. I don't know why, but I started to get a little bit nervous. One thing I quickly learned was that the California Highway Patrol was all about discipline. The 15 reporters in attendance were broken up into groups of five, where we joined California Highway Patrol cadets in their morning marching routines. Johnson, what's so funny, Johnson? A drill instructor barked about two inches from my face. I couldn't help but bust out into a big cheesy smile and start laughing. So... I love immersive stories. I love reading them. I love doing them. Uh, what do you remember about this experience? Oh, man. I remember how out of shape I was. Man, CHP is incredible. If you guys don't know, it's like they, it's literally like a military organization. They are so well maintained. Um, and I remember they took us into this big gym and, you know, had us go through the normal exercise routines, training routines that those guys and girls do. And I'm, I'm terrible at push-ups to start with. I have like no upper body strength. I just remember doing push-ups and thinking that they're going to say, okay, you can stop or like go to the next activity. And, but instead I had this huge guy just like two inches from my face shouting at me. Um, I remember going through their obstacle course and barely clearing the hurdles. I'm man, I was a decent athlete growing up, nothing special, but man, uh, it was sad. It was sad. But it was fun. It was uh, that was a story that I enjoyed, and I gained a ton of respect uh, for what those people do. You read those journalist stories every now and then. You know, I, I think who was it? Plimpton that like wrote a book about like yeah. trying out for the NFL or something. Paper line. Um, you're right, right. And those are always kind of funny and enjoyable, kind of cliche at this point. But man, it was bad. It was. I wouldn't make the academy. That's safe to say that. <laughs> That's awesome. 
when I was writing and I was living in New York, I thought I've always had this fantasy of becoming a, a volunteer firefighter. And uh, the New Rochelle, New York fire department actually had an opening and they were letting people take the fire test to actually apply. And I was mid thirties at this point, late thirties. And I was like, I, you know, I ran in college and I would do a bunch right. of marathons and I thought blah, blah, blah. And I just got my ass kicked. Like it was oh, embarrassing. Man. It was embarrassing. You realize how many good athletes are out there compared to oh, yeah. you. <laughs> and, and these people do that thing on a daily basis. And it's just, I mean, writing is important. Reporting the news is important, but it, it opens your eyes a little bit to like, man, there's some really important jobs out there and thank God for the people who are fit enough and good enough to do them. Uh, you wrote a piece also 2019. Uh, I love me some me. Terrell Owens still possesses trademark swag, kind of. It's a really good freaking piece, actually. You wrote, um, he walks through the thank door you. to head into the meeting, a physically imposing figure wearing black sweats and a white hoodie. Inscribed on the hoodie are the words Muhammad Ali. He looks like he's in his late 30s, early 40s at most. He looks like an athlete. His head is completely bald. His Cheshire cat-like smile lights up the room. Even at age 46, Terrell Owens makes his presence felt. And I wonder, like, um, when you write for bigger places, you definitely get used to dealing with athletes quickly. And the oh, wow, part of it all fades fast. We are not like, oh, my God, I'm with these guys. Oh, my God, I'm with these guys. You... um. You grew up a 49ers fan. Oh yeah. So when you when you do this piece and there you're there with Terrell Owens, are you able to not have the oh wow, or is there a part of you that's kind of nervous and oh wow? I, I almost never get nervous. Um, it's not nerves. It's I mean there is that oh wow for sure um, because this is a guy who was one of my favorite athletes growing up. Right. I watched him when I was like ten to whenever he retired. So it was, it's more surreal, but I don't get nervous. Um, he was actually really nice in person for all the things you hear about TO. He was incredibly warm. It's cool. It's cool for me. Um, I didn't get to do it a lot, but like I would get press passes to go to the 49ers and I wasn't going just to go. I mean, I was writing content and you know, I've met George Kittle. I've met all these guys, Steve Young, Shanahan, um, it's just surreal to me. I remember the first time I got admitted and given a pass, it was just like, wait, seriously? And I think you're right. It wears off after a while. You're like, oh, these guys are just regular people. But it's still one of the coolest things I got to do. And I can I can tell friends and I can tell my wife, like, you know, when they show um, Jimmy Garoppolo on TV, I can say, hey, I, I shook his hand or I, I asked him a few questions. And it's really cool. It's It's just like it's it's fun to be a part of something like that, but I don't get nervous. They're just people. Do you feel having covered a lot of high school sports, do you feel like high school athletes, you know, like when I was growing up, I'm sure when you were growing up, I, I own every clipping that was ever written about me in a high school newspaper, everyone in a scrapbook. Do yeah. these kids still care? They do. They do. Um, especially maybe not like in LA, um, but like, I would say probably even there, but especially in small towns, um, these kids don't get much attention, right? We don't have college recruiters coming up here very often. We don't have, they don't show them on the TV news with little highlights really, uh, very rarely. So yeah, I mean, it's a big deal for them. Um, I've had kids, it's really cool, you know, 15, 16, 17 year old kids thank me 
shake my hand after the game when I'm done interviewing them. Hey, thanks for coming. It's like really, really nice kids. And it is, it's a big deal for them. I think kids probably do still cut it out because I know, I know for a fact, because there's been times when there's been times when parents have gotten mad at the things I wrote, even though I was just reporting what happened in the game. If you know, so I know that people still care. Absolutely. What's the, uh, what's the angriest someone has gotten at you as a journalist? For a while, I was covering courts and in a small town, you know, we have an obligation to report certain things, um, but, you know, everyone knows certain families. And so I remember one or two instances where, you know, I wrote stories involving crimes committed by fairly prominent people in the community and remember getting some people upset, you know, how could you do this? Um, as far as sports wise, it's probably just little things. I might've misspelled a name or something like that, which obviously is like a cardinal sin, but I would say the, the crimes beat small town. You could, you could write a story about someone committing a crime a month later, you see them at the grocery store. And so that's always interesting to deal with. You now teach a uh, fourth, fifth grade combo class. So like I said, you're an yeah. elementary school teacher. Yes, um, yes. I don't know. Are the things about teaching that you love? Have you come to sort of embrace teaching? How, how are you as a teacher? You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I've been thinking about it like all weekend. So I have about a month to make up my mind. Um, I, I got hired as a, basically an intern teacher. So um, you can get hired as a teacher as long as, you know, the district or whoever feels like you have potential or you have the right skill set. You do have to pass a test or two just to get into the classroom. Um, but I am non-credentialed. I don't have a certificate right now. Um, so I have to make up my mind here really quick if this is what I want to do, because um, you have to get that credential within a certain amount of time. So um, I've been spending the last few months just kind of analyzing, like, is this the right field for me? And, and there are things I like about it. I like you know, obviously helping young people. Um, hope, hopefully I'm being a good example for them. I, I feel like there's not a lot of males in education. And, you know, if I can, if nothing else, like even if I'm not a great teacher yet, hopefully I'm just like a good male influence. But yeah, there's a lot of things I don't like about it. It's a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. I think I came in a little, little cocky or overconfident. You know, if you can work in journalism, you can do feel like a lot of different things. But Working with kids is tough, man. Um, these kids, they're, they're good kids overall, but they're still 10-year-old kids. And it's a handful. I'm exhausted most nights. Teaching is a tough gig. Do you feel like you're more natural as a writer than a teacher? Oh, absolutely. And, and that's another thing. Like, I, I feel like when I teach right now, I'm a little more like, I don't know how to say this. Like, I don't want to say robotic, but I just feel like maybe I'd be better at teaching older grades because you can have more like intellectual discussions and deeper content. Um, right now, like I'm trying to kind of like mold myself into like an elementary teacher. And you need a certain voice, a certain, I don't know, just a certain vibe when you're teaching like young kids like that. And I'm, I'm getting there, but writing came much more naturally to me, but I've tried to like, I taught a journalism lesson for like a week, a little unit on journalism. So I had the kids practice like the inverted pyramid and oh. you know, maybe I can work on the school newspaper at some point. Let me ask you a final question. You're sort of at a crossroads. It seems like you're at a crossroads. You're not really sure where you're going next. The donkey calls and he wants you to write his, his memoir 
Um, <laughs> he'll pay you solid money. Are you doing it? The donkey memoir? Oh my gosh. No, I'm not doing it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not doing it. Now, now, if Terrell Owens called and wanted me to do a memoir, heck yeah. Um, and I'm actually thinking of writing a few books um, just in my free time, but I'm taking a break from writing. We'll see where this teaching thing takes me. If not teaching, I don't know, maybe something else, but writing, I'm not writing it off forever, but for now, we're going to move on. You're going to be upset when Donkey, my story by Donkey with Jeff Perlman <laughs> becomes number one, a number one New York oh Times bestseller. God. You're going to be like, this guy stole my idea. Well, good luck finding it. It's it's out in some pasture somewhere on a sanctuary now. So we don't even know if the donkey's alive. Donkey, exactly, could exactly. All right, well, Matt, God must be real because we've recorded this <laughs> in full. I appreciate it. Just don't forget to hit save. Okay. <laughs> I want to thank today's guest, Matt Johnson, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Matt on Twitter at Matt One Mariposa, and go to Amazon. Damn it. And order South Fremont Cougars, The Road to a Title. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Slinging Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I make no money for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the terrific MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.